Welcome to Run This World. I'm your host, Nicole DeBoom. I'm a former pro athlete turned entrepreneur turned 50-year-old mom of a 10-year-old. She's still 10, by the way, but that's going to go soon too. No matter what stage and age I am, I always feel happier when I'm learning, growing, and connecting. And when I find amazing things that help me learn, grow, and connect, I naturally want to share. This is an episode in a special series about women, midlife, and menopause. My goal is to help women understand, learn, and handle the changes we experience as we age. We're obviously very different emotionally and physically at 50 than we were at 20 or 30 or 40. I just so happen to be in the perimenopausal stage of life at 50 years old myself. So much of this series focuses on what happens during the transition before, during, and after menopause. Today you get to hear from a leader in the menopause nutrition space, Dr. Jen Salib Huber. Jen is a registered dietitian, naturopathic doctor, and intuitive eating advocate. Many of you may be wondering what the hell an intuitive eating advocate is. Well, we dive into this deeply in our conversation today, as well as the relentless diet cycle many of us have explored often since we were very young. But my personal favorite part of the conversation is the fact that we can go into a whole myth-busting track where we talk about cravings, protein, iron, pooping, (laughs) keto, and more. Jen is smart, fun, and real, and she's truly passionate about helping others. Her final nugget is one of my all-time favorites. You've got to listen to the end for it. Don't go fast-forwarding right now. Stick around, listen, and stay to the end. Before we get started, though, I'm excited to share about today's sponsor, Inside Tracker. I found Inside Tracker when I was Googling how to get personalized blood drawn from my home based on what I wanted to analyze without a visit to the doctor. I wasn't even sure that was possible. But it is. Not only does Inside Tracker offer exactly what I was looking for, they have a slew of blood work programs or options or plans, I think they call them, that I didn't even consider, uh, some of which felt perfectly targeted to me as a 50 year old athlete. In a nutshell, this series is about being an advocate for your own health, and Inside Tracker is the perfect partner to help us do that. So quick little story, I did a blood draw this summer, I got my results, and I've been working on making some improvements. When I signed out, I added a little extra service called Inner Age onto my blood work plan. And what Inner Age does is it analyzes your results, and then it puts it into some kind of formula, and it shares your internal age. So as, as it says on the Inside Tracker site, people age at different speeds, and the date listed on your driver's license might not represent your body's internal age at all. That's kind of cool, right? I wanted to know. So at the time, I was 50.4 years old, and my inner age was 47.9. So that's pretty good. It's like two and a half years younger, but I want to improve on that. I want to be like 10 years younger than my actual age on paper. Um, it's been about six months since that initial 
um, evaluation. So I scheduled another blood draw for next week so I can compare the results and see if any of the lifestyle and nutrition changes I've made may have helped. I'll be releasing an episode, the next one, with my Inside Tracker experience and a conversation with one of the Inside Tracker RDs who will help translate the results and, and add more depth and knowledge than I can. So stay tuned for that one. I'm super excited. I can't wait to share it, even if the results are bad or weird or whatever. Um, and I'm anxious to see if, if it triggers anything within any of you. So to learn more about yourself and play along with me, you can get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store for a limited time. Just go to insidetracker.com forward slash run this world. That's insidetracker.com forward slash run this world. All right, you got it. So now that that's done, it is time. It's time to learn about how we can eat to improve our menopause journeys, let's hear from the awesome Dr. Jen Huber. All right, Jen, we finally connected. It's only been, what, three months? <laughs> I, I know. It feels like so long ago that you first reached out, but thank you so much for inviting me to uh, to come on today. Well, you're like the perfect guest for the series that I'm doing on menopause because you are open, you are out there, and you kind of like to tell it like it is. And the other really cool thing is that as women, we are often um, like led, I don't know, I'm like using hand gestures, sort of led and guided by the aromas and sights and sounds of food. And this tends to be your arena, your area of expertise. So I am just so excited. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. I love that description. <laughs> uh, well, okay. Before we really launch into some of the topics that I want to I wanna dissect today, I want you to share how you got interested in this field. Oh, you know, I love this question. And I always feel like it changes a little bit because the further I get into my journey, the more I kind of look back with those, you know, um, you know, that kind of clarity of vision of how I got here. But essentially, I have been practicing as a registered dietitian and a naturopathic doctor since 2004. And the first probably 10 years of my practice were very, I called it a general family practice, but it was definitely kind of um, you know, had more families and women and children in it just as like a function of, I think, healthcare in general. But at some point after that 10 year mark, as I started to transition into perimenopause, which was actually on the early side at like 36 or 37, I'm, I'm menopausal now at 45. At least I hope I have like 70 days left in my one year countdown. Um, but you know, as I was getting into that age and stage myself, I was also just starting to see some of those women from my practice going into that stage. And there was kind of a perfect storm of everything that just led to me saying, you know what, I want to really kind of deep dive into this personally, professionally. And it also kind of coincided with my own undieting journey that after kind of 20 or 25 years in that diet cycle, personally and professionally, kind of all came crashing to an end. So it was kind of one of those opportunities to just let all the bricks fall and just kind of build that back up with intention. And that's what I've been doing for the last five years or so. And, and I love it. Oh my gosh. Okay. There's a lot of um, like hot words in there that 
I want to include in, you know, we didn't even mention the hot flash word, but um, I want to go back in time a little further and ask, you know, when you were a little girl, can you look back now? You mentioned just when we started that every day you can, you have more of like a, a little more introspective look at what your, how your past guided you to where you are. Um, would you say you were sort of run by food or did you have a good body image? Like how did all of this stuff sort of play? Oh yeah. No, I mean, I was textbook that I had no awareness of my body image until puberty and then puberty hit. And, you know, most people don't know. I didn't know. My parents didn't know that our body fat percentage has to double at puberty to achieve and maintain menstruation. And that, you know, most girls get softer and rounder and larger by all descriptions as they kind of go through puberty. And that's exactly what happened to me. And so I hit that age and stage and all of a sudden it's, you know, I'm 12, I'm heading into seventh grade. I've just gone through puberty. I look completely different and I was ahead of the curve compared to my peers. So I felt like it was happening to me and only me. Of course, they all went through it as well. But by the time they caught up, I was thoroughly entrenched in diet culture. I, I had gone on my first diet at 12 um, and had, you know, very, very disordered eating um, by the time that I was 15. So that continued for basically the next, you know, 20 years almost until it, it all crash landed in perimenopause. And that was kind of what I call that, that unraveling that I went through. But yeah, it started early and it started really kind of textbook for me. Well, it's interesting too. Like a lot of times I, I want to know what my doctor actually went through, you know, in order to know that I can, they can relate to me. And so I think that that makes you human. And I appreciate that you are open about your background and you mentioned disordered eating. Was it like, I think it's called orthorexia where you think about it all the time or did you have like a textbook eating disorder? I I definitely had an eating disorder. Um, And I would say that orthorexia was where I lived in the wellness culture world, thinking that I was in recovery, that I was doing right because I was, you know, choosing foods to be healthy, that I was choosing behaviors that were supporting my health. And it was condoned. It was respected. It was what people wanted my advice about, but it wasn't healthy. It wasn't sustainable. And every part of that was disordered, even though it wasn't technically an eating disorder. Well, and, and, but now it is right. I mean, I think some people probably don't know what orthorexia is. Maybe you can educate. So orthorexia is a relatively new classification of disordered eating, which is a preoccupation with healthy eating. Um, And so it doesn't have the characteristics of anorexia or bulimia, and it often doesn't meet the criteria that we have used as a very narrow box for how do we diagnose someone with an eating disorder. But it is something that we see a lot of, and especially coming from that integrative, you know, complementary alternative health world where people were coming to us looking for us to sanction their disordered eating in the name of health. And so that, you know, is something that I I, I recently spoke to a group of naturopathic doctors about and said, you know, you really need to be aware that people are going to be coming to you 
because they want you to say that it's okay to think about food and cut out food groups and track everything and read all the labels and only eat organic and want everything to be grain-free and gluten-free and all the labels, but it's not. There's no part of that that needs to be done in the name of health with certain exceptions, obviously, celiac disease, allergies, like there's definitely people who need to do that, but none of it's healthy, right? For the average person. And, you know, I think we're really like uh, towing the line with the topic of just mindset in general, because it feels like this is what you are. You're kind of a mindset coach. This is where you've evolved, right? Yeah. And I, and I tell people this all the time that, you know, one, we have to remember that if we needed to track and count and micromanage every bite of food, we wouldn't be here having this conversation because the species wouldn't have survived. We have so <laughs> much resiliency as humans that there is no possible way we would need to micromanage you know, our, our health that way. And I think that even just that sometimes is a mindset that people haven't explored because the message from all around us is that you're a good person. If you pay attention to what you're eating, you're, you know, you're doing the right thing. If you're trying to lose weight, you're doing the right thing. If you're tracking all your food to make sure that you're getting enough protein, but there's a flip side to every, every one of those scenarios. And that's the part that I try and bring in is that, you know, eating doesn't have to be perfect. Food obviously matters, but not in the way that we've been led to believe. And often this is what I call the undieting process. We really have to call up those beliefs and say, are they serving you? Um, are they always true? Sometimes true, never true. Is there a, an area of gray that is more sustainable and feels more comfortable? And just telling people that it doesn't have to be all or nothing sometimes just opens up a whole new world for them that they've never considered with food. Oh, you're so right. Like, I think part of it too is that it's also been ingrained in us that we need to set clear goals. And we need to measure them in clear ways. And what became the gold standard for measurement of body health was the scale. And I can tell you, we haven't owned a scale in probably 25 years. I haven't owned a scale since I was after college, but I went through the whole same situation with, you know, thinking too much about food, trying to you know, be as skinny as I could, but still perform well as an athlete um, and even got weigh-ins in front of all the other kids on the swim team in high school or in college. And, uh, you know, all of that stuff just, it doesn't make you feel, it makes you not want to accept your body. And I think that's a big part of it. So, you know, here we are, we've been told that we have to measure our worth through our body from what the scale says. What do you, how do you train people away from the freaking scale? <laughs> well, again, I'm a, I'm a facts and science person. Um, I always joke that like, I'm not in the woo in any possible way. And so for me, it has to be true all the time or most of the time in order for it to really resonate with me. So I ask people, I'll say, you know, when it comes to the scale, does any good ever come of it? And, you know, the answer is usually no. (laughs) 
And it's the answer is no, almost all the time. Because there's only two reasons why people get on the scale. One is that they, they're feeling good in their body and they think they might've lost weight and they're looking for the scale to validate that. So they're giving all of the power to a number. They're feeling good and they need a number to validate that. There's no good that can come of that. Or they're feeling bad in their body, which is usually actually not about our body. It's other things that are making us feel vulnerable, you know, feeling exposed, feeling scared. And so we feel bad about our body and we get on the scale and we're looking for a reason to punish ourselves. So those are the two main reasons. Now it should just be a number, but it's not. So you know, I tell, I tell people always ask yourself and, and I, we're going through this right now in my, in, in my membership, there's someone who, where they were talking about this because it's so hard. It is so ingrained that if I weigh myself every morning, I can keep an eye on things. But if weighing yourself every morning is making you feel bad about your body, you will never get to a place where you can just exist in your body doing your thing, living your life without needing that check, without needing some kind of external validation that your body is okay. So the scale is really kind of incompatible with a body neutral or body neutrality, kind of healthy body image on a regular basis. There are always going to be situations where maybe you can make the argument surgery or something like that, where you need to know your weight, but on a day-to-day basis, it's not doing for us what people think it is. It's not a safety net. It's a cage and it's not helping you get anywhere good. You know, I also think, I love that. I love that so much. I love the question you started with. Does any good ever come of it? We could probably use that question for every topic today. Um, (laughs) But I was thinking about too, that especially when I was pregnant, I learned more than at any other time in my life, that your body weight can change dramatically throughout the day. Yep. And it has nothing to do with how fit or healthy you are. And uh, I remember one, one morning, like going to the doctor, something had to get weighed for my pregnancy. And then later that day I was at the gym and I was like, God, I feel particularly like swollen. And I weighed myself. I was like nine pounds heavier or something. And I was like, okay, that's not me (laughs) eating more. It wasn't like I put nine pounds of food in my body and it didn't come out. Like that's just the fact that bodies change and they fluctuate. And so there is also that that's an extreme thing, but like we get so crazy about a few pounds here and there. And it's like, dude, that could just be like some weird water thing going on a certain time of the month, you know, perimenopause, whatever it is. And so I think you're right. Like when we fixate on those little things, those exact numbers, it usually makes us feel worse than making us feel better. And you can't hate yourself into a body that you love. You can't. So you can't get on the scale and feel bad about your body and think that you're going to wake up tomorrow morning wanting to do good by your body. It doesn't work that way. Shame is a terrible, terrible motivator. And that's the only thing that a scale does is that it shames us. So when, and sometimes when I'm working with people, they'll say, oh, but I really want to know it's been a week or two or a month. And I really, really want to know what the number is. And I'll really kind of needle them and say, why, why do you need to know? And it's because they don't trust how they're feeling. So they're starting to feel good in their 
right? They're starting to feel confident. They're starting to feel like I've got this, but they don't trust it. And they need that external validation. And sometimes that alone is, you know, a bit of a wake up call of just how much power that number is held over them. Yes. Oh my gosh. Well, when you talk about, you've used the term undiet, it's kind of one of your catchphrases. We're going to undiet you. So you let's explain like what is diet culture? And then maybe you can talk a little bit about how you help people undiet themselves. (laughs) Yeah. So I think let's start with what is diet culture. So diet culture is really just the the industry, I guess, if you want to call it, that supports the pursuit of intentional weight loss in the name of health that tells us that we need to achieve a certain size or shape in order to be healthy or feel good about ourselves or whatever it is. So, and it really supports keeping people in what we call the, the diet cycle is the predictable series of events that happens whenever we start pursuing intentional weight loss. So we start a diet usually because we're feeling bad about our body. We've been told we should or want to lose weight. And initially it feels really good because we've had this bad feeling about ourselves, about our body, and we're doing something about it. And our brain really likes that. And so initially it feels really good. We start doing something that maybe we've done a hundred times before, and it might last for a few hours, few days, few weeks, but eventually the restriction starts to feel like work and it feels uncomfortable and it feels frustrating and it starts to feel bad. And after a while, it just feels like that restriction leads to cravings and those cravings lead us to kind of say, screw it after a period of time. And, you know, then we feel even worse. We have a moment of relief, but then we feel even worse. And then the cycle starts all over again. So that's the diet cycle that people have done hundreds of times. There, there, you know, there's data to, su- that, to suggest that, you know, women have been on over 60 diets by the time they reach midlife. And I think that's an underestimate because yeah, most you're women probably that right. I know, most women that I know don't actually ever remember a time when they weren't on some kind of diet or always in the back of their mind thinking about food. Can right? I ask, you yeah. know, I think somebody once mentioned like that there's a honeymoon phase for each new I've want have wanted to change the word diet from my um you know vocabulary for a while. So I'm calling it eating regime <laughs> <laughs> or eating regimen. Maybe it's not a regime. Eating regimen. Um and so you know, I, I did a, a vegan full on like program years ago and felt great for a really long time until I didn't, you know, mm-hmm. and then you start to try to figure out like how sustainable is this eating regimen or diet. And that's, you know, at the end of the day, really, they are all diets until you can turn them into your lifestyle and not think about them anymore. Right. Right. Yeah. And I feel like that's a little bit part of the, the elusive maintenance land that is always like the promised land at the end of a diet, or it, you know, it's the, the lifestyle changes that make it feel like it's not work anymore. And I think that there's, there's something to that for some people, but one of the things that I talk a lot about is that whenever we're doing anything, we really have to commit to the process and not the outcome. And committing to the process means trying it on, maybe with some intention, maybe with some support, 
seeing how it feels, seeing if it works for you in the way that you want it to, but having the flexibility to say, I want to keep some parts of this, but not all parts. And it doesn't have to be perfect. So sometimes these like dietary tribes, as I call them, really kind of cage us in feeling that like there's no world outside of these rules that we've constructed that initially feel good because they're giving us structure, they're giving us a plan, they're telling us what to do and what not to do, but the novelty of that wears off. So that's, I think, the honeymoon piece that you're referring to. Um, But initially, again, it's, you know, our brains are wired to avoid pain and seek pleasure. And, you know, cause that's how we survive that that's led to the survival of the species, things that feel good and that are good for us. We want to keep doing. And so anytime that we feel bad about our body and we already have, especially the wiring that says, oh, all you got to do is start that diet again and you'll feel better. It becomes an unconscious thing to go right back into it. So the undieting is explaining that because sometimes, you know, often people will just have, you know, a ton of aha moments of like, you've just described my life and, you know, being able to say like, yeah, it's a cycle that you're in and you do have to break it. But in order to be able to break the cycle, you have to understand why you're there, how you got there, what's keeping you there. And it's often what I call the default programming. It's that programming that says, if I'm feeling bad about my body, the only way to feel better is to start a diet. Just a quick break to take care of some business. As you know, today's sponsor is Inside Tracker. They provide mobile blood draw services, or you can drop into any of their blood draw centers that are local to you. If you are waiting to figure out what is going on inside your body because you're just not sure how to do it or you don't want to deal with making an appointment with a doctor and figuring it all out, just go to insidetracker.com forward slash run this world, get 20% off all of the products on their website. And before you know it, you will have data, you'll have a better understanding of what's going on inside your body, and you will have tips and tricks from the experts at Inside Tracker to help make a difference in your life. Go there now, insidetracker.com forward slash run this world for 20% off. All right, everyone, back to the show. You know, one of the big things that is standing out to me is this idea of an attachment to perfectionism and that part of the process towards being like successful or happy or whatever you want to frame it as is to embrace imperfectionism in your your approach, right? Because it's like we go, we're going to do this and we have to do it all right. And then the minute you slip up or you do something wrong, you just give up and, and you know, kind of screw the process and then it'll start over again, too. So do, it, do you have any thoughts on this idea of perfect versus imperfect in your mindset? Yeah. I mean, all or nothing thinking is something that everybody who works in the intuitive eating space talks about because the diet mentality has traditionally been you're either on or off a plan. You're either being good or you're being bad. You're on track, you're off track, you're on the wagon, off the wagon, whatever it is, there is no in between. You're either at a 0% or 100% and 99% isn't good enough. But we have to make decisions about food every single day, multiple times a day, 
and often for other people. If you have children or other people in your house, how can those decisions ever be perfect? They can't. It's impossible. And it will never feel comfortable and easy and safe and enjoyable if you're always having to think, is this good enough? That is a a terrible place to live when it comes to food. Oh, totally. Okay. So you talk a lot about intuitive eating. So how does that play into the undieting of your mindset? So intuitive eating is a framework that was developed by two dietitians, Evelyn Tribbley and Elise Reich, uh, almost 30 years ago now, maybe even 30 years ago. Um, and there are, you know, hundreds of studies that support it. Now there's validated assessment tools. Um, and it really is, I think the most beautiful framework for normal eating, but it, it provides people with a bit of a roadmap if all they've ever known is how to diet. So the intuitive eating framework is based on 10 principles that, you know, rejects the diet mentality, teaches that attunement of learning to listen when I'm hungry, when I'm full, what I need to be satisfied, how do I respond to emotional hunger, but also, you know, talks about health because of course, like I said, food matters. So it incorporates what we call gentle nutrition, which, you know, for women in midlife, I always say like, it's totally fine to try and get 25 grams of protein in your meals. There's, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing diety about that. As long as it's enjoyable, it's filling, it's satisfying. You're not dreading it. You're not thinking about it all the time. It has become part of your routine, but that routine is flexible. It's forgiving. It allows you to go on vacation and not track how many days you didn't get 25 grams of protein at a meal. But what I love about it and what was really kind of hit home for me was that it acknowledged something that I had never heard or been taught, which was that about 70% of our body size and shape is genetically determined. And there's a ton of data to support this. There are twin studies of identical twins separated at birth that, you know, there's some, the famous studies, the Minnesota um, studies, there's, there's other published research that says, you know what, when we, when we reunite these people in adulthood, we can attribute about 60 to 70% of their health and their body size and shape and, and, you know, traits to genetics. And there was a lot of freedom in that to say like, okay, I've always had hips and they're not going anywhere because that that's genetically in, in me. Right. And, you know, often I think it gives people a lot more space to explore gentle nutrition from a health perspective when they know that most of what people see on the outside and on the inside is actually genetically driven and programmed into our DNA. So the intuitive eating is that, is that framework, but the undieting is kind of everything that leads people up to being able to implement the intuitive eating because so many people are just done with dieting. And I love that. And, you know, they, they read a couple of books or listen to some podcasts and they're all in and it resonates with them. And so they just, they stop dieting and then they're kind of like free floating and then something happens and they feel bad about their bodies or something happens and they're forced to think about food and they don't know where to go. So that undieting process is really about taking people from you're done with dieting to you're feeling like a competent intuitive eater who has the tools to really kind of do this for the rest of your life. 
Yes, we all want that. Well, at least we want to be ready for intuitive eating by the time we hit perimenopause. I mean, hopefully our whole lives way earlier than that, but come on. So I guess one of my questions is your area, your field of expertise and where you've really gravitated to has to do with food, eating, and menopause. So how does this intuitive eating In other words, can we intuitively eat our way through menopause? (laughs) We can intuitively eat our way through anything. Absolutely. Um, You know, I mean, so you have kids, right? Am I correct about that? Yes, I have one daughter who's 10. Okay. So I'm sure you remember when she was a baby that, you know, you couldn't convince her to eat if she wasn't hungry and you couldn't convince her to stop if she was full, right? Or if she wasn't full. And we're born intuitive eaters. And just like you and I don't think about how many breaths do we take in a minute, our our breathing rate adjusts to our activity level and our body's demands. You don't think about going to the bathroom, right? You get a cue from your body that that needs to happen and you make it happen. And if you wait too long, it gets uncomfortable, right? That's the same kind of thing that we can teach. So what I try and tell people is that eating doesn't have to be perfect, but that doesn't mean that some intention, and that's what the gentle nutrition is, is really that intuitive eating with intention can't help you to feel better. Because when we strip away the outcome of eating a balanced meal with lots of protein and you know car- complex carbs and you know all those things, if we strip down the outcome of that, we just feel better when we eat that way most of the time. We have the energy to do the things that we want to do. We can, you know, we have endurance, we have stamina, we're sleeping better, our mood is better. And so those are health outcomes. Those are things that we can really say, okay, look, when I'm having fish two or three times a week and I'm having, you know, et cetera, et cetera, I feel good. And that's what I really try and attach to people because they, I think women in particular feel that they can't trust themselves. And so they'll say, I want to eat intuitively, but if you tell me that I can eat anything I want, I will never eat a vegetable again. And the example that I always bring out, because every single one of us has had this experience, that if you go on vacation for a week or two, and you're eating at restaurants and you're having all the fun food and you know you're having ice cream every night and all that stuff by the time you get to the end of your vacation you cannot wait to get home and just get back to your usual way of eating you enjoyed the fries and the ice cream and the treats and all those things but you're done with it the novelty has worn off and so that's the magic of permission is that when we don't restrict those things, when we have permission to include them regularly, the desire and the need to have more than we need to feel full and satisfied is kind of just gone away. So teaching people to eat intuitively in menopause is really teaching them for the, maybe the first time to connect what they're eating to how they're feeling and not just what they look like and what the scale says. Oh, that is so key. So it's like during this time in our life, everything is changing. It feels like you wake up one day, you can't think of words. Your brain is just like (laughs) dead. Um, You're not sleeping anymore. You, you walk around sweating profusely, like when at the exact moment you don't want to be, 
And um, so we have all these things that are happening to our bodies and more that we can't control and we don't know when to expect them or how they're going to really um, manifest. And so I hate to think (laughs) that eating is a way we could something we could control because I know that that is the way of thinking that leads to disordered eating. But is there a healthy way to look at your eating um, in a way that can help you manage and control some of these symptoms that our hormones are creating in our bodies? Yeah. And that's the other thing that I, that I love doing is teaching people about, especially those phytoestrogens and soy foods. So soy and flax, um, all, all beans and lentils and all plants to a certain extent, but especially soy and flax contain isoflavones and phytoestrogens that can bind to one of our estrogen receptors. And for some people, not all, but I was one of them that it works really well, um, combine to these receptors and maybe just help to take the edge off of some of the symptoms, especially hot flashes. So in whether we're talking about, you know, phytoestrogens or other foods with intuitive eating, we talk about the add in approach. So this again is definitely a mindset thing, but it can be such a game changer for people that instead of trying to take away, restrict, cut out, we're adding in. So if somebody has a smoothie every day, just try soy milk. Um, you know, if you regularly make a salad with, you know, or a rice bowl or a poke bowl or whatever, put some edamame in, throw some chickpeas into a stir fry along with your chicken. It's adding in. And that add in technique feels, you know, abundant. It feels like, oh, it's more. And when we're in that space with food, we feel safe you know, because ultimately food is one of those things that, you know, if we don't have enough, not only is it uncomfortable, but our brain thinks that we don't have reliable access to food. And that's probably not a good thing when it comes to, you know, controlling appetite and cravings because we're wired for survival. And so if our brain thinks that we don't have reliable access to food, it's probably going to make us interested in all food. Um, And so if we can get into that headspace that we're already starting with enough and we're adding something in that may or may not benefit our symptoms, but there's no harm in it. I always say like, you know, adding in some tofu or some soy milk or some edamame, even if it doesn't magically cure your hot flashes, it's not going to hurt you. You, you've, you know, you've lost nothing from it and you're not taking anything away. So that's kind of one of the ways. And it's such a great example to talk about those foods in particular, because yeah, those are, are often things that I suggest with people. Oh, I love this. And I love the add-in approach. Abundance. Abundance. What a good word. Okay. You know, one of the cool things that I think we can do today is there are a lot of different, um, different facts and figures that we have absorbed over time that we have come to believe are true. Yeah. You have become a master of myth busting. <laughs> so I'm going to throw out a topic and okay. I would love you to share the common myth and then let's bust it. Okay. okay. Sounds good. So let's talk about protein. Okay. What's the myth about protein in menopause and, and keep all this in the framework of perimenopause, menopausal years of life. So there's a truth, there's a myth and a truth with protein. So it is true 
that having more protein, or I should say it's probably true, that having at least the minimum and likely a little bit more helps us to stay healthier, stave off that sarcopenia that no one wants as we get older, maybe even protects our bones and helps them to stay strong. So there is some truth to that. Now, there actually is some research that suggests that it's not as strongly evidence-based as maybe social media would lead us to believe, but there's also no harm in making sure that you're getting enough and a little bit more. So that part is the truth. The myth is that you need like double the amount. And that's often what I see people coming in with is they'll say, you know, my trainer or my whoever said that I need to get, you know, X amount of protein per day, which is an almost, I think, impossible amount to get with food mostly. And so they're trying to have two protein shakes a day, but they hate the protein powder, or they're trying to like snack on chicken breasts, or they're eating like cans of tuna. Um, So, And the other thing is that I think that it puts protein too high up the scale that all of those discussions around protein make it seem like it's the most important thing when really it's just one of the things that we can think about with gentle nutrition as an intention, but it doesn't have to be a rule. And it certainly shouldn't mean that you're sacrificing other things. Love it. Busted. All right. Next (laughs) myth. How about, um, the keto diet is a smart thing to do when you hit perimenopause. <laughs> this could be a whole episode. Uh-huh. I think um, it was actually. Yeah, it, yeah I've, I've <laughs> done a couple podcast. of them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so in essence, the keto diet has never been shown to be helpful for anyone other than epileptic children who have not responded to conventional treatments. Um, When it goes head to head with any other diet, it doesn't do any better. But in particular, the concerns that I have for women in midlife are that it's almost always low fiber. Even if you're eating all the kale in the world, you're not getting any complex carbohydrates. You're not getting any of those whole grains. You're not getting any fruits. And fiber is, you know, pretty much the most important thing. I think if you're going to intentionally add in one thing that is likely going to benefit your health you know, not just your poops, but your health long-term fiber is the secret sauce. So keto is low fiber. Um, It's also huge, unsatisfying. The novelty of bacon wears off so quickly because I've done it. I've been there and you know, that that's exciting at first, but it wears off really quickly. So it's really unsatisfying and the carbohydrate insulin model of weight management is really dead and it needs to, you know, people need to stop bringing it back to life insulin is not the cause of weight gain. There can be associations, but there is so, there's such an important difference between correlation and causation. And that is so true when we're talking about carbohydrates, because insulin is actually, I'm telling you, I'm going to go off on this, but insulin is a satiety hormone. It is so hard to feel full. It is so hard to feel satisfied if your insulin levels haven't gone up normally as they do when we eat. So it's unsatisfying. Um, it's unsustainable because it's so restrictive, but it may also increase 
decrease cortisol levels because, because it's so hard to do. And because it's so restrictive, it may actually prompt us a, a stress response for people. We see this with keto diets. We also see this even just with low carbohydrate diets that it can be stressful. And as a result, your cortisol levels may go up. And if there's one thing that we can all agree on, it's that cortisol levels don't do anything good for us outside of helping us to run away from a tiger. We don't want to have to do, feel like we're doing that all the time. So that that Um, was the shortest answer I think I've ever given to that question. I can see that if we don't stop, we're going to finish the episode on this topic. (laughs) I love it. Okay. So busted. So there are other ways to eat and other, you know, other ways to approach your eating during this time of life. Keto is probably not the healthiest. Um, Okay. Here's another myth. If I'm craving something, that means my body needs it right now. Mm. Yeah. And I think that some of this, again, it's a little bit of a truth, not that it you're craving it right now, but for example, with iron, we know that there are some behaviors with iron deficiency, um, you know, like uh, craving ice, ch- you know, chopped or chipped ice or um, craving dirt. Those are very clearly associated. Wait, what? Um, craving dirt? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, I've heard about craving liver and things like that, but never dirt. And not no, ice it's, either. Yeah. It's called pica and it's it's a well-known symptom of iron deficiency anemia. So there's that, but over the last, you know, 20 years I've seen things like if you're craving chocolate, you need magnesium and you know those kinds of things and there really hasn't been any other evidence to support that. Cravings are almost always what we call a result of emotional hunger. So you're feeling a strong feeling emotion, you're bored, you're lonely, you're upset, you're mad, you're sad, whatever it is. And your brain again has firing that default programming that says, Hey, when we're feeling bad, if we eat this thing, it feels really good. So can we go do that please? And if we try and resist it, it feels like we're, you know, we're fighting this, this tiger, we're fighting this thing. And it would like, we start to think about it all the time. And what we know about cravings is that there is no, there's no strong evidence that it's the food itself that creates the craving, but we do have evidence that the behavior of restriction creates the craving. So I I liken this to a slingshot. So the farther back that you pull the slingshot, the farther it's going to travel when you finally let it go. So the longer that you try and restrict or not, you know, give in, I guess, for lack of a better word to what you're craving, the more of it, you're probably going to need to satisfy that craving when you do have it. Wow. (laughs) And people have a hard time believing that, but you know, this work of permission is a game changer because, and it happens so quickly. People are always surprised. You know, they'll say, Jen, there's no way you can tell me that I can have chips or chocolate or whatever in my house and that I won't eat it all just because it's there. And the first couple of days, maybe even week, that that's what you'll do. The novelty of having it in your house absolutely will mean that you need to honor that craving more often. But then when you know it's always there, you don't crave it as intensely or as often. And you just start to notice that you're not thinking about it as much or that when you do want it, it doesn't feel like it's overpowering. And for anybody who's listening and thinks this lady's crazy, she doesn't know my cravings. She doesn't know what I'm talking, what she's talking about. I always kind of somewhat facetiously will say, has anyone ever craved carrots and broccoli and eaten them to the point where they felt like they were out of control? 
Answer is almost always no. Probably not. (laughs) Maybe smothered with cheese and bacon. (laughs) But they're never restricted, right? Right, right. You can want broccoli and carrots. You can choose them. You can enjoy them. You can have them. You can find them satisfying. But you'd be hard-pressed to find someone who says, oh, can't keep carrots in my fridge. I just eat the whole bag. Right? Yes. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Love this. So cravings. We've gotten down and dirty on them. Can we talk? I don't know what the myth is here, but can we talk about what I'm what I call meno brain? I mean, maybe that's actually the brain fog. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So it feels like mommy brain. I experienced mommy brain for real right after I had my daughter for like Mm -hmm. a year. And I'd be like, yeah, can you get that? It's like liquid food. It's in the fridge. And they're like, yeah, you mean soup? (laughs) Yeah, that. Can I have that? Um, You know, like you can't think of basic words. I'm getting it again. And I don't know for at first, I just I didn't know what was wrong with me until I started talking to other people who are going through perimenopause and menopause. And uh, they were like, oh, yeah, that's part of it. And I was like, wait, can I blame everything on menopause and perimenopause? Maybe we talk about our. We talk about our reproductive organs as being like the drivers, but our brain is also a reproductive organ. We have um, estrogen and progesterone receptors in our brain, and they also go through the effects of shifting levels of hormones, which is why, as you pointed out, it also happens postpartum. So, you know, when you're pregnant, you're in swimming in this pregnancy hormone soup for nine months, and then it goes away rather abruptly. And your usually your normal kind of reproductive period hormones don't come back right away either. And if you're breastfeeding, that can delay that period coming back. No period, no estrogen, no progesterone. So it's actually a very similar state. And the good news is that research tells us that for most women, it actually settles down, comes back to normal, and that that brain fog feeling, or especially the the memory stuff that we go through where we can't remember those little things actually significantly improves for most people once they're through menopause. Uh, And I've shared, you know, before that, you know, for me, the last six months have been the best of the last decade. You know, it feels like so many things have come back and I definitely feel like my mental mojo was one of them. (laughs) Oh my gosh. That is so amazing because I think the myth might be like, this is the beginning of the end. This is the slow decline of your brain and your body. You are no longer hot. You will have a meno gut and meno brain for the rest of your life. You're done. You know, you're you're sort of on the the worthless side now. Let's move on to the younger chicks. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And uh, And definitely. I mean, there is um, there is, I think, an important conversation around you know, there are some people who are at risk for early dementia that I, you know, I always say like, don't dismiss changes to memory and things like that as menopausal, right. You know, without consulting with your doctor, but know that most of the time it is related to hormones. Okay. So with one of those um, possible issues, I read recently that taking iron supplements when you are menopausal or during these years leading up to menopause and and throughout it can lead to dementia you know a higher risk of dementia or just mental decline i personally 
have had very low iron for many years of my life and have supplemented. And so I read that and it was like, women over 50 shouldn't take supplements. And I was like, oh, I better throw away my iron supplements. Is that a myth? Um, I need to see the study. In general, we say that um, people who do not have periods should not supplement with iron unless they've been told to do so by their doctor, because without that monthly shedding of the lining, it can be easier to get too much iron. And, you know, iron's one of those things that too much and too little is the areas that we want to stay away from. Um, but in general, you know, when we're talking about the symptoms of iron deficiency with or without anemia, you know, we tend to see a lot of those crossover symptoms with brain fog, with fatigue, difficulty with concentration. Um, so yeah, I'd have to see that study because I haven't come across that. All right. I'm going to send it to you. We yeah, can have another do. episode on iron <laughs> myth busting. Um, okay. Here, I'm just curious. So you are a wealth of knowledge and you're going through the same period in life that you're helping women with. How are you at taking your own advice? You know, when yeah. the doctor becomes the patient, are you able to do to like walk the talk? I, I try. I think I do. I mean, I really dived into the phytoestrogens probably about five years ago when I was, you know, again, in the thick of it. Like I said, I'm knock on wood coming up on my one year mark. So for me, the last three or four years have definitely been the more symptomatic ones. So, you know, including those phytoestrogens, including soy, cooking with tofu, that's absolutely part of what I do. But I really try and find that elusive balance of just, you know, being able to listen and respond to what my body needs, which sometimes means working out five days a week and sometimes means not doing that. Um, you know, sometimes it means um, going to bed early and sometimes it means staying up too late, but it's really just about learning to listen to what you need, because sometimes what we need is just to listen and respond in a way that feels intuitive and, you know, just kind of makes us feel alive. And because that's the part that I find that with diet culture is that dieting is a, is a life thief. It's a killjoy. It makes you think about all the things you can't do. And once I was able to shed that I really feel like that's what I wanted to do more of. So yeah, I think I'm living it, um, it, you know, perfectly imperfect and doing all the right and wrong things, but I'm, I'm enjoying every minute. So most minutes. <laughs> I, mean, I feel love coming off of you and maybe that's because uh, you have learned and embraced loving yourself and your body. And I just feel it. And I think the people thanks. listening feel it and people who work with you feel that. Thank you. I, I very, very much appreciate that. That's a really kind thing to say. Well, for, for anybody listening who wants to work with you, I know you've got a membership. Yeah. A group. Membership is brand spanking new. So we've been going for about a month now. Um, you know, we're doing kind of um, application only for the next couple of months, not to be like exclusive because it will eventually open up to everyone. But just as I'm trying to work out the kinks of, you know, being able to do this. So people who are interested um, can reach out to me and, um, and we can kind of get them in that way. But hopefully by end of January, it will be a well-oiled machine that people can sign up for whenever they want. Oh, good. Oh, that sounds amazing. Um, and then you do have some programs. Don't you have a program you're running soon, an undiet type program? Yeah, so kind of my, my yeah. baby, my signature program is my 12-week program called Beyond the Scale, which is 
the the program that walks a small group of women, so you know, kind of under twenty, um, small group of women through this process of I need to stop dieting because I can't do this again. I can't open my app one more time. I can't go to Weight Watchers one more time through what I call the messy middle of undieting, which is, okay, how do I actually unlearn what I've been doing for 25 years and relearn it in a way that will be, you know, intuitive. So that's going to be starting in January. So registration for that is going to be opening up in early December. Awesome. And then I did see on your Instagram, which is super fun. Um, Let's tell everybody where they can find you on Instagram. Yeah. So at menopause.nutritionist is where I hang out probably too much, but I actually love all the conversations I have there. So uh, I call it self-care most of the time. (laughs) Oh, it's so fun. And you just have such a great um, personality on Instagram, on social media. So people, let's get over there, subscribe to her channels and start following Dr. Jen Huber. One last thing, people can hang out with you real live in person next April of 2023. Um, Where is this and what are you doing? Italy. Yeah. So the first midlife and menopause retreat is happening at the end of Italy or at the end of April in Italy. And um, I'm calling this like a food joy, body joy retreat. So I have wanted to do something like this for so long, just to be able to kind of get immersed with people because so often those conversations that I'm having around food are like hypothetical or things that have happened in the past or in the future. And just being able to have real live conversations about carbs while we're making pasta at a vineyard in Italy is going to be pretty much the most amazing thing ever. And there's so much, so many fun activities planned. We've got biking, we've got hiking and just lots of cozy, cozy conversations um, so that we can kind of leave that week feeling just really good about our relationship with food and ourselves. So uh, I'd love, love to see lots of people in that, but that's 12 people um, max. So definitely something if people are interested in to reach out sooner rather than later. Awesome. And do they go to your website to find it? Yeah. So in the link tree in my bio, um, they it's the the top link so they can find that info there. But uh, you, any of my channels, um, website, et cetera, will have a link to that. Amazing. Um, I could definitely keep ticking off topics and uh, keep rolling with you for at least another hour. But we've got stuff to do. We've got people to help and we've got um, scales to kick. So in light of that, I'm going to ask you the final question I ask every guest who comes on the show. And that is, if you can leave our listeners with one final piece of advice, one little nugget to help them run their worlds in a bigger and better way, what would it be? To remember that at the end of our lives, no one will remember what you weighed, what your clothing size was. And, you know, I do this sometimes in my coaching, I'll say to people, you know, if you're having a hard time separating your worth from your weight, is anyone going to put that in your obituary? Like it's kind of morbid, but I think it's a real, um, it's kind of a litmus test for no, that's not the part of me that matters the most. So yeah, your weight is not your worth. I love that. No one has ever said that final nugget before. So thank you so much for coming on today, for sharing yourself and uh, sharing your wisdom and giving us permission to love ourselves. Thank you so much. I've really loved this conversation. 
All right, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in today. It feels good to take charge of our health and our bodies, especially at a time in life when they are doing crazy, unpredictable things. Do not forget to take advantage of our offer from Inside Tracker to be the best advocate for your own health as you can. For a limited time, Run This World listeners get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. Visit insidetracker.com forward slash run this world for 20% off. Do it. And if you have questions, shoot me a note, Nicole at NicoleDeBoom.com, and I will answer any questions you have. Okay, everybody, that's all I got today. You know what time it is. It's time to get out there and run this world. Have a great workout, and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.